0: I think that uh, a lot of Christians have failed to recognize just how important it is in the Christian life to surrender. You know, this idea of surrendering, I think, goes against, well, I know it goes against the human condition. I think it goes against our cultural condition. In the United States of America, we are very big on our freedoms, very big on our free will, very big on uh, people can't control us, except surrender isn't being controlled by someone. Surrender is giving control to someone. Now, if you, give, if you surrender to the right person, they don't abuse that control. They don't abuse that authority. And let me tell you, there is no better person to give control to than Jesus Christ. I mean, he has proven over and again throughout history, in your own life, if you have paid attention, that he will take the control you give him, and he will only always bless you with it. I did not mean that your finances will grow. I did not mean that your health will turn a corner. There are other blessings than physical and financial. But you will be blessed with whatever surrender you give to God. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are. it It has a list of blessings towards those who accomplish in some way a part of the Christian life. And we just see humility spread throughout those blessings. The Bible tells us, humble yourselves, in the sight of the Lord, and he'll lift you up. It also tells us that he rejects the prideful while he embraces and honors the humble. I think too many Christians have lost sight of the importance that humility plays in our lives. You can say that you love others, and I hope that you do, but as I said up on the stage a few moments ago, love that is not humble love is not biblical love. And so you are claiming that you love people, but you are loving them in a way that is not helpful to them if it is in pride. You can claim you love God, but if you love God in a prideful way, it's not helpful to them. Humility, folks. It is so very hard to be humble because to be humble is to recognize you aren't enough. You don't have enough to be enough but Christ is. Christ is enough and more. And humility comes to that place where you say, not only am I not enough, but Christ is enough, and I'm going to accept him and what he has over me and what I have. And that's not just at the moment of salvation. That's every day of the Christian life. Wake up, I'm not enough, but God is. I don't have enough, but God does. Every moment of conflict, I'm not enough, but God is. Every moment of tribulation, trial, hardship, I'm not enough, but God is enough. And every moment of success and glory, I wasn't enough, but God was. You see, it's easier to be humble in the hardships. Those humble us. And then we just climb that ladder of pride again in the successes. Remember your humility through the victory that God gave you. You made it because he was enough. This morning's message, Children of Light. So we're in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's take a look at these verses 1 through 11. But the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. That phrase, day of the Lord, is not referring to the day that God blesses you. Oh, it's the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Today is the day of the Lord. That phrase, day of the Lord, had a specific meaning as was told us in the Old Testament, and it was not a day of blessing. In the Old Testament, the prophets foretold of the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is completed in the book of Revelation as we see it in future. It is a day of judgment, not blessing. The day of the Lord is the day when the Lord will arise and bring judgment on the world for their centuries of rebellion and sin. You could say that a day of the Lord has already taken place in the flood thousands of years ago. When God judged the world for their sins, that was a day of the Lord, but there is another day of the Lord. This time it will not be through a flood. God promised he would never flood the world again. It would never be destroyed through flood, but he didn't promise there would never be judgment. He didn't promise there would never be destruction, just not through a flood. The day of the Lord in the future is a day of judgment tribulation but unfortunately for the world it's not just one day the phrase the day of the Lord is clarified for us in the Bible as seven years of judgment Those seven years of judgment is often referred to as the seven years of tribulation. So the word tribulation, the phrase seven years of tribulation, and the phrase day of the Lord are one and the same. And the apostle Paul is speaking to these Christians in Thessalonica, and he's saying, "Hey, you know about the day of the Lord, right? It's been told in the Old Testament, so you are aware of this day of the Lord." He says to the world, "It will shock them when it arrives. They won't be looking for it. They won't be ready for it. But you will know. You will." not be surprised when it occurs. You will not be taken as a thief by night because you've been told, you've heard, and you believe what the Bible says regarding the day of the Lord. The the world doesn't believe it. The world doesn't believe the Bible at all, let alone of some future seven-year tribulation of judgment. Verse 3, "'For when they, the world shall say, "'Peace and safety.'" Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman. That word travail upon a woman, the word travail, is referring to pain, specifically the pain of childbirth. And as a woman going through childbirth, once the contractions begin, and once the pain begins, the pain continues and only increases until the baby is in the arms of the mother. And the same with the seven-year tribulation. The pain and tribulation will increase year to year until Christ returns the second time and takes and gathers together all of the saved and ushers them into the thousand-year reign that he will have on this earth. Verse 5, ye are all children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober." The world is full of people who are asleep in a dreamlike state, not living life as God intended, instead living a dream that they desire. And like a dream, they don't think it really matters because what you do in your dreams don't really matter. In fact, often we don't even remember what we do in our dreams. What impact could your dream have on the next day? Very little. For most of us. And like a dream, most people think my life doesn't matter. Like a dream, most people think I'm just going to do whatever I like because what impact will it have on future generations? What impact will it have on even those I know now? Very little. I'm just a drop in a very large ocean. What's the point? Let's just sleep through this life and enjoy what we can while we can because it doesn't really matter except that it does, because every person represents a human soul, and every choice impacts your human soul and the souls of those around you. And folks, people are literally going to heaven or hell often due to the way you do or do not reflect Christ. It is not a dream you're living in, and your choices do matter. We are children of the light. We are children of the day. We know better. Because we know there is an eternity, and we know that we're all going, heaven or hell, eternally, somewhere. We know that. And because of that knowledge, we want to make a difference. And so we live our lives awake, not asleep. We live our lives as children of the light, not children of the night. Verse 8, but let us you are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love for an helmet the hope of salvation for god hath not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our lord jesus christ god has not appointed us to that day of the Lord. We as the church are not destined to endure the seven years of tribulation. God has not appointed us to that day. The rapture will come before the seven years of tribulation. That is why it will not overtake us as a thief, because first of all, we know it's coming. Second of all, we're looking for it. Third of all, when it arrives, we'll be gone. That day, those years of judgment will not come upon you. God is not intending for you to suffer through the wrath that he intends for the world as consequence for their sins. Let's go back to the first part now. Verse 1, I see three points in this message. The day of judgment, the day of opportunity, and the day of promise. Let's look at verses 1 through 5, the day of judgment. But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for ye yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Letter A, God can warn the world. God will not force them to listen. You ever been frustrated when you've talked with someone and you're trying to tell them truth that matters? Not just truth about who's the best team and what is the best type of food. I mean, we're talking real truth. We're talking truth that will change their life. Whether it's emotional truth, something that can assist them in their emotional condition. Whether it's a spiritual truth, something that will change the direction of their eternity. It doesn't matter. A major truth that will impact their lives, you know it. You've discovered it. And for many in this room, you've discovered it the hard way. You took the long path to this discovery and you are trying to help someone not take that same long hard journey of discovering the truth that you literally just want to give them right now i am speaking to every parent in this room because every parent in this room feels deeply the truth of what i'm saying Every parent in this room has learned some truths the long, hard way. About relationships, about ourselves, about success, about money, about love, about God, about faith, about trust. You've learned these hard truths and you are trying to give them for free to your children. You paid for them and you paid dearly in tears, in pain, in health, in financial loss, in bankruptcy. You have paid dearly, and you want to give it to your children. And yet your children look at you and say, no, I want to pay for it too. And it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart, parents, to see that your children, like you, are choosing the long, hard path. Children, teenagers, That is a foolish decision to make. Your parents are not offering you free wisdom to annoy you. Your parents are offering you free wisdom to rescue you from yourself. But your parents can't force you to listen. And they've learned that the hard way as well. And God, as our Father, will not force us to listen either. You can hear and not listen. God is offering you free advice. And it's not just every week. And I'm not God. It's not me. God is offering you free advice, the Holy Spirit, directly to you daily if you will just listen. If you will just look into his word. And read what he has to say. God is saying it's free. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to get it the hard way. It's free. I want to give it to you. Will you receive it? And yet so many adults treat God the same way our children treat us. They say thank you, but no thank you. I'm not sure that I can trust what you're saying. I want to figure it out. For myself. Because here is the response of many adults, teens, and children I don't know it for sure if I don't experience it myself. Now, they wouldn't actually say that phrase, but that's essentially their life motto. That is the motto of almost every teenager How can I know unless I experience it? Don't touch it, it's hot, really? Oh, I've experienced it. It is hot. You were right. Now that I've experienced it, now I know it's true. Not because you said it, because I experienced it. Don't hang out with that person. They will destroy you. Oh, really? Oh, you were right. They did destroy me. But now I know because I experienced it, not because you told me. How many times does someone have to tell you before you recognize they are right? You don't have to experience it. How many times does God have to tell you before you will stop experiencing what he is warning you of? Obviously, this particular truth is to the world regarding salvation, regarding the tribulation. Get saved because judgment is coming. Accept Christ because you cannot continue in a dreamlike state without consequence. That is the pure truth of this text. But Christians, how many more truths is God giving you regularly? Trying to keep you from more pain. Pain on top of pain. You've had enough. You've suffered enough. God doesn't want you to live in suffering. He wants you to live in peace. And that peace comes from knowing and applying the wisdom he gives you for free. Take the gift. Hear the wisdom. Apply it. Letter B. The world's promise of security cannot be trusted. Isn't this funny in verse 3? Literally at the moment of the seven-year tribulation, before Christ raptures the church, before we are brought to heaven, before the Antichrist begins to reign, at this moment, this is when the world will scream the loudest. Everything's okay, folks. Nothing to see here. It's all right. Trust me. You're going to be fine. Peace. Friendship love. The verse actually says peace and safety. You're going to be okay. Nothing will harm you. Nothing bad will happen to you. We promise you we've got your back. When the world is screaming the loudest, everything is okay, that's when you need to start looking behind your shoulder. When the world is saying we've attained peace, that's when you need to start locking your doors. When the world is saying, we provide you safety, that's when you need to get a big dog, all right? You can't trust the world. Inevitably, whatever the world is saying, whatever the world has come to an agreement unified on saying, you can almost always say, all right, the opposite must be true then. Inevitably. How could that be? How could that be so often the case? That when the world unifies on a belief, how can it almost always be the opposite is true? Because the world isn't following truth. The world is following the father of lies, Satan himself. If the world is coming to a unified agreement on something, it must be under the direction of their father, Satan. And Satan is not going to unify them on truth. So logically, if a world is following a liar and they all agree on something, they must be agreeing on a lie. Therefore, you would be a fool to follow the world as they follow the liar. And yet, how many Christians have changed their view of morality, what is right and wrong, if there is even a right or wrong, because the world says so? How many churches have literally changed who can and cannot be a pastor, what kind of lifestyles you can and cannot live because the world says so. How many Christians have changed their view of God's word? word? It's now outdated and you can't trust it and parts of it are good but parts are not because the world says so. The world only follows a liar. You follow the truth giver. And if the truth giver is giving the opposite information from the world, that just clarifies for you even more. That is the truth giver. You can't trust the world. And at the doorstep to the seven-year tribulation, the world is going to do what the world has always done and give you a massive smokescreen. Don't look here. Everything's okay. You're safe. And then, bam, church is raptured. Antichrist takes over world tribulation for seven years and the world's still going to be saying but it's all right but it's okay and their house is burning down around them christians your job is to reach the world with truth not to be reached by them with lies your job is to introduce them to the way the truth and the life not to let them introduce you to the one you already left the father of lies. You left him a long time ago when you got saved. Why would you let them reintroduce you to him? The world doesn't know what the world doesn't know. And the world doesn't know much when they listen to the father of lies. Let us see. We're called to reach the world, not to become the world. Verse 4 But ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. A thief doesn't knock on the door and say, Hey, I'll be back in 30 minutes. Make sure all your stuff's packed up and ready to go. A thief doesn't send you a text and say, You guys busy? I'll be over there an hour. All right? The thief doesn't warn you. The thief shows up, preferably for the thief, at a time when you're not home. If you are, when you're asleep. That's when the thief shows up. God says, I'm not going to warn you. <laughs> I'm not going to warn you that it's in five minutes, get saved now. It's in five days, get saved now. God says, my warning is get saved now because you won't know when it comes. Get saved now because there is no three-hour warning before the rapture. Get saved now. Like a thief, when it comes, the world will not be ready. Folks, we are not the world. And in verse 4, we are not supposed to be deceived as easily as the world. We are not supposed to be lost emotionally, spiritually, theologically like the world. It bothers me that so many Christians do not understand basic truths about the Bible. The world doesn't understand basic truths. That I I get. The church doesn't understand basic truths. What's up with that? You claim to be a follower of the truth. How do you not know truth? You don't invest enough time. In knowing truth, God can give it to you, but he's not going to force you to listen. And then verse 5, ye are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. We are called to reach the world, not to become the world. You say, Pastor Russ, how do we reach the world if we don't look like the world? I have a bigger question for you. What are you going to reach the world with if you look like the world? That's my question. What exactly are you bringing to them When you've embraced them, in the sense of embraced their lifestyle, embraced their deception, what are you bringing to them? You see, the best way to help children is to not be a child. Adults who think, oh, I want to reach a child, I need to act like a child, inevitably don't really help the child, they enable the child. Teachers at a school who act like a child aren't helping the child. And the rest of us adults scratch our heads, raise our eyebrows and say, what are you doing? You're an adult. You see, adults reach children by being something different than a child. I'm not saying you can't have fun. I'm not saying you can't joke around. But to be a child is to be immature. To be a child is to not take on responsibility. To be a child is to not know. When an adult lowers themselves down to immaturity, no responsibility, and not knowing, what exactly are you going to do for the child now? Other than be a big kid not going to say the kids won't like you. Oh, the kids will most definitely like an adult who acts like a child. But them liking you doesn't mean you're helping them. You see, adults can help children because we were a child. Now we're not a child. We're going to help the child also not be a child someday. We're helping them move on from this to that. If we go back to this, we can't help them get to that. It's the same with Christianity. Look, we were children of the darkness. That's how we were born. You know, no one in this room was born a child of the light. We were, now we are something different, and we want to help them achieve something different. You cannot help them get to something different when you go back to what you were. You say, well, then how will they listen to us? God is very clear on that. God says they will listen when they see that you love. The world will not know you are Christians because you act like them. The world will not know you are Christians because you act different from them. The world will know you are Christians because you love And then once they see that you love, they will listen. And then when they listen, will you show them something different than what they already are? Will you tell them something different than what they already know? We are not children of the night. We are children of the day. Live in the day and bring the children from the night to the day to meet the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Now, I do not mean that Christians need to look exactly opposite from the world. Whatever the world wears, we can't wear. Whatever the world enjoys, we can't enjoy. I am stating that the way we view our life, the way we view God, the way we view truth, the way we view eternity, that is all filtered through truth. That makes us different. The way they view those things is filtered through lies, and that makes them different. You don't have to believe like the world to reach the world. Otherwise, What are you reaching them with? Day of judgment, it is coming. God has given the warning. The warning is not just to the world, the warning is to the church. We're running out of time, folks. We are running out of time. Out of time to do what? Out of time to reach the lost. Day of opportunity. Verses 6 through 8. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Sober means be aware. If you are drunk, you are not aware. If you are high, you are not aware. To be sober is to not be drunk and to not be high. To be sober is to be self-aware. For the Christian, to be spiritually self-aware. Are you aware of what is going on around the world? Are you aware of what is going on in your life, in your home, with your family, with your friends. Be sober, be aware, be watchful. For they that sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet, the hope of salvation. Letter A. Those who focus on Christ's return will remain faithful to his kingdom. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. Verse 8, let us who are of the day be sober. You say, Pastor Russ, how can I be of value to God's kingdom? What can I do to further God's kingdom? What can I do to bring the lost to the light? What can I do to glorify, honor, lift up God? I can tell you where you can start. You can start by being aware that there is a problem. Being aware that the human condition is not okay. Okay? Stop enabling sin, stop thinking that everything is okay, and be aware that judgment is coming, and that for those who enter into judgment without Christ, we are talking an eternal death in hell. Be aware of that. Those who focus on the return of Christ and that are aware that there is a return, that there is a time limit, this is not forever, what you're experiencing now in this life is not forever forever. Look, we're not even guaranteed forever as far as the United States and the history of the U.S. is concerned. If you look at the history of cultures and nations, a few hundred years is about right. And then there's some crumbling that happens, if not outright starting over from ground zero. A lot of nations historically don't really make it thousands of years. We're not guaranteed any amount of time in any way on this earth for anything. Be aware. And recognize your time is limited. Not just your time to love your family on this earth. Not just your time to be loved by family on this earth, although that's important. Your time is limited. Not just to enjoy God's creation, which is nice. Your time is limited. Not just to impact this world in a way that makes it just a little bit better, which is good. Your time is limited to bring a lost soul to Christ. That is not an opportunity you will always have. Today is the day of opportunity. So what are you doing with the opportunity you have? Well, Pastor Russ, I'm going to work, and I'm taking care of the house, and I'm raising my family to the best of my ability to love God. Great, that's where you start. But you don't end where you start, right? Otherwise, you're not doing it. You're not going anywhere. You start from home. But then you move on. And by the way, I strongly suggest when you move on, take your family with you. Don't leave them behind. You start with your family. You start with your spouse. You start with your kids, pointing them to Christ, loving them towards Christ. And then when you've succeeded and gotten a little traction with that, then you move on and your family together reach another family. Reach a stranger. Reach the lost for Christ. Take advantage of the opportunity that you have while you have it because judgment is coming and those who are aware of the judgment and those who are looking for the second coming of Christ are more likely to do something with the time that they have while they still have it. So, if you are struggling to impact God's kingdom, I'll tell you what is your problem. You are short-sighted. All you see is today. And some of you don't even see that. Some of you in this room, all you see is yesterday. You can only see the mistakes of the past. You're living in the mistakes of your past, the mistakes of your youth. You can't even see today. How can you take opportunity for God's kingdom for the future when you're living in the past? And those living in today, that's still not good enough. You can't make a strong impact when you're only living day to day. Open your eyes. Lift your heads up and look out. Look over your problems. Look past the past. And see what is coming. See who is coming. And see what happens to those who are left behind when he comes. And now, do something about it. It's a day of opportunity. My wife and I decided a long time ago, when we were in college, we wanted to use our lives for God's kingdom. And for us, that meant full-time ministry. That does not mean that God intends that for all of you. For some in this room, you living your life for God's kingdom looks different than full-time ministry, but it is still full-time service to his kingdom. It just doesn't mean you're working at a church every day or at a school every day, but you are still working for God every day. What are you doing with that time that you have every day for God's kingdom? Our church, Meriden Hills, we've decided that the best way to impact this community is with love. Just saturate them with love. And so every opportunity we have, we throw love at them. I realized that the best way to show love to a community is through acts of service and gift giving. It's hard to do it through words of affirmation. You know, how can you, show, how can you tell a community you guys are so awesome all the time it becomes superficial? It's hard to do it through physical touch. You'll creep them out. So you're kind of left with, you're left with acts of service and gift giving, right? That's what we're left with. You could say quality time, but that's just not going to happen. And you know what? This church, you guys are really good at that. I am so proud of this church. Like it, I honest, honestly, my heart just swells up with honor and pride, being in a group like this that is so good at gift-giving and acts of service for the right reasons, not obligation, not because I told you to, because you want to. In fact, some of you do it even when I don't ask you to. We had an event, well, I had an event yesterday where we were, I was giving out baseball pants, and the reason I did that was another opportunity to show the community love, just another way to say, hey, we're here for you, we love you, and you know what? A lot of families can't afford baseball pants, their kids are wearing them that are too small, they have holes on them, they're dirty, showing up at practice at games, dirty baseball pants and they feel bad, and you know what? It's a small thing to give a nice brand new pair of Nike baseball pants to a young kid or a teenager or even an adult man, and we can do that. And I purchased 600 baseball pants, and yesterday we had them spread out in the lunchroom, and they're brand new, in bags, most of them, with tags on all of them. And I opened the doors at 10 o'clock, and from 10 to noon, the people just were coming in and taking baseball pants for them, for their kids, for their neighbors. There were coaches coming, taking baseball pants for their entire team. It was just another way to say, we love you guys. Now, I didn't make that announcement to the church. You know why? Because I love you guys, and I'm not trying to wear you out. I know that we have an event coming up, the Easter event. That's going to be a big event. We've got a lot going on. A lot of you have signed up in the lobby. There's a sign-up sheet there now to do so. If you haven't signed up yet, wear your shirt, come out, represent. That is a big deal for us, for our church. I have people in the community already asking me, are you doing this again? It was so awesome. We hope you will. And, and they're excited about it. So I didn't want to wear you out having this baseball pants giveaway two weeks before the Easter event, so I didn't even tell you about it. But I did announce it on Facebook. And you know what I had? I had Priscilla show up yesterday morning. So the poor woman comes in. Her hair's wet. She's running in at 11 o'clock. She says, oh, Russ, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I said, didn't know what? She said, I didn't know about the event. I said, that's not fine. You can get some baseball pants. She says, I don't want baseball pants. She says, I'm here to serve. I said, well, Priscilla, you didn't know because I didn't ask. She says, well, I'm here. How can I serve? And so it was Priscilla for the last hour. I said, well, Priscilla, how about you just take it over? I'll do other things. Priscilla was up there by herself. And I'm not saying this to make anyone feel guilty because I didn't ask you to. I was able to do it. I've got folks in this church who are coming to serve when I'm basically saying, don't bother, and you come out anyways. I had another person text me and say, hey, do you need help? And I said, no, I'm good. I appreciate you asking. Two people. There are pastors who can't beg people to come serve, and I've got people begging me to serve, and I don't even really need it, but they want to anyways. And I know, I know that those two people... Represent the heart of most of you. You're like, well, I would have done that too. I know you would have. I'm not saying this story to make you feel bad. They are representing you. I know that. You love this community, and they know that you love them. You are so gracious. The reason I can buy 700 pairs of baseball pants is because you guys give. That's why. The reason we can do an Easter egg event for hundreds. Last year was like five, 700 kids walking with bags of items is because you give. You say, well, pass through us, you know, giving them candy and giving them baseball pants, is someone going to heaven because of that? No, but someone will know they're loved because of that. And then when they know they're loved, let's see what God does next with that. That is my philosophy. And that is your philosophy. I know that. And God is using it. Those who focus on Christ's return will do something in the now. Letter C. I'm sorry, letter B. Excuse me, letter B. God's judgment is held back for the sake of those who've rejected him. Why hasn't God returned yet? The world is chaos. There's really, there's no reason why God wouldn't come back now. So much pain, so much suffering, so much cruelty. Why doesn't God return now? It's not because God is lazy. It's not because God has forgotten us. Not because God has better things to do. God does not return because when he does, the unsaved will suffer dearly and eternally. God has not come back yet for the sake of the unsaved. That's why he delays his coming. You say, well, doesn't God love his church? God does love his church. And God has asked us to endure the chaos for the sake of the unsaved. But let me tell you again, don't waste that endurance. If we're going to endure the chaos, let's bring some of that chaos to Christ. If we're going to endure... The, the sin of the loss, let's bring some of the sinners to Christ along the way. Let's not waste the opportunities we have, even though we have to endure through it. God is delaying his return for the sake of those who have not yet been saved. And now, let us see. The greatest companion to faith is not works of religion, but works of love. Verse 7, for they that sleep in the night, they be drunken, or drunken in the night, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and what? Love, faith and love. The greatest companion to faith is not works of religion, works of self-righteousness. I have faith, therefore I'm going to be doing the things that I think a person of faith should do. Why? Well, because I should because I'm a Christian, because I'm obligated, because I feel guilty if I don't. That's all works of religion and does very few people any good. The greatest companion to our faith is love, has always been and will always be love. If you love me, keep my commandments. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. The second is to love others. In the book of Revelation, we're told about seven churches... And to one of these churches, he says, you know what? You're doing all the right things. You just don't love me anymore. That's Christ talking to the church. And he says to them, if you continue as you are, if you keep doing the works of religion, and even actually compliments them on their faith, you've got faith, you've got works of religion. He says, if you keep doing this, even with the faith and even with the works of religion, he says, I will shut you down. Without the works of love, You're not truly representing me as I desire to be represented to the world. Your faith and your works of religion aren't enough. Where's the love, he says. Church, you may think that your works are good enough to impress God. That just shows your ignorance. Your works are like filthy rags. If you want to make an impression on the world for God, do it through love. Now, love is a work. Love is an action verb. So you are going to work. And in fact, you might even be doing the same exact things just for the different reason. You say, well, pastor us works of religion, works of love. What's the difference? The difference is not what you do. The difference is why you do. That's the difference. You'll do the same stuff for love. And that is what reflects God in the way he desires to be seen. The greatest companion of faith Not works of obligation, not works of religion, it's works of love. Now, verse 9 through 11, the third point, day of promise. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as ye also do. Letter A. God's judgment will not fall on his church. Now, I'm pre-tribulation. Let me explain briefly. Pre-trib means, I believe, the church will be raptured before the seven years of tribulation. Mid-trib means, believes that you will endure three, three and a half years of tribulation as a church, then God will come get us in the midst of the seven years tribulation and rapture us then. Post-trib is the belief that we as a church must go through all seven years of tribulation, then at the very end, God will rapture us, and then we'll come right back down riding horses like almost immediately, like it's up and down right away. Pre, mid, and post. I am pre-tribulation for multiple reasons, and this morning's message is not to prove my position. But with that position in mind, I believe this verse clarifies my belief system. Again, look at verse 9. God hath not appointed us to wrath. What does that mean? God does not intend for us to go through this judgment the day of the Lord. At all, from what I see. He hasn't appointed us to wrath. It is not the position of the church to endure the seven years of tribulation. It is for us to endure up to the rapture for the sake of taking advantage of the opportunity because when he comes for us at that point, it's tribulation. Our job is done. And now, God will work outside of his church. But until the rapture, we have a job to do. God says he has not appointed us to this day of wrath, the seven years of wrath, which is one of many reasons, using one of many verses, why I hold to pre-trib, that we'll be raptured before the Antichrist begins to reign. We'll be raptured before the seven years of tribulation. We'll be raptured before all the chaos that ensues because God doesn't intend for his church to suffer his wrath. God loves his church, and you are his church. And what kind of love would it be if when God literally designates seven years to reign chaos on the earth, that he left us behind? I believe God's love is a different type of love, and that in his love, we will not be left behind. He will take us to heaven before that seven years of chaos, judgment, and tribulation occur. Letter B, God Has better. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. God has better. Simple statement, but oh, so true. The world offers, God has better. The world provides, God has better the world requires something of you in return for something else. God requires and offers better. God has better, folks. God is better. God has given you better for free than the world will ever give you at cost. For free, God gives you better. And now as a disciple... God says, now, I've given you for free so much good. Now, if you want more, here's what I need from you as a disciple. Why would you not take that deal? Do you not see how good of a deal that it is? Being a disciple is hard. Christ warned us of the hardship of discipleship. He says, you've got to take up your cross. He said, you'll be persecuted. You'll be hated for my name's sake. Your own family will turn on you, he warned us. He said, consider the cost before you become a disciple. What person starts to build a building without having the money? What person goes to war without an army? Consider the cost before you become a disciple, because it will be costly. But the reward is better. The reward is not heaven. That is free. The reward is not the Holy Spirit. He is free. The reward... It's not eternal security. That is free. But there are rewards for discipleship, and it is better. Because in the end, you will be a disciple of someone. Christ said you can't serve two masters, but you are going to serve one of them. You say, I'm not a disciple of anyone. Ah, well, that's where you're wrong. See, you are a disciple. You are a follower of someone or something. And if it's not Christ, you've chosen the worst. Choose Christ. It's better. Let us see, and we're done. The journey is hard, but it does not need to be lonely. Verse 11. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. Comfort and edify. Comfort is the embrace. Comfort is the love. Comfort is the offer. Comfort does not have to be the words. In fact, those who are hurting the worst need very little words, they need your presence. They need a connection. The deeper the hurt, the, the, the uh, less your words impact them. If the hurt is just a shallow hurt, your words are enough and helpful. Your words are hurtful when it's a deep hurt. You know what helps when it's a deep hurt? You, your presence, your love, your sacrifice, your time. That helps. And yet we think words fix everything. No, they don't. They don't. Stop trying to talk your way out of someone else's pain. Be there with them. Comfort. Let them know they're not alone. But it's not just time and comfort. Words are helpful in the right case, and that's edification. That's the words. It's not edification of telling everyone how they're wrong and what to fix. It's edification of you can do this. You can complete this. I see better in you. Let me help you. Good job what you're doing. Keep it up. Christians are really good at calling out the problems of other Christians. But we stink at praising others for their good choices. Let's do better. You don't have to be alone, Christian. You say, Pastor Russ, I feel alone. I've been coming to this church for weeks, for months, for years, and I still don't know a lot of people. And that saddens me to know that that is the case for some in this room. You know what the Bible says? Those who want friends have to act friendly. You say, well, Pastor Russ, I do. I smile. I talk to people. I try to greet people. We are providing opportunities on a regular basis for you to connect. Connection doesn't usually happen overnight. It usually takes multiple times, three, four, five times of a connection with someone before you actually feel connected and it becomes natural. If you came to one or two outreach events, come to three or four. If you've come to one or two of our events where we're, the ladies are doing something, they had a ladies' movie night, I think you, you guys had a great time, the ladies' movie night, Friday night. Uh, we're having a couples' night out this coming Friday. Going to go uh, to hibachi, and then we're going to go to an escape room. Uh, we're, we're constantly doing things as a church. We're providing opportunities, whether through service, outreach, or just connection and pure fun. The more you take advantage of those things, folks, the more you will connect with people. And then you will find you're not alone. I know almost everyone in this church. And I know everyone in this church better than most of you know each other. Some of you know some deeper than I do, but I know everyone deeper than anyone else knows everyone. And I tell you, I'm telling you honestly, this is a great church. You, you are loving people. And I know this. We've got a lot of introverts in this church. And it's hard for you to get out of your shell, out of your comfort zone, to connect with someone else. But you are loving. And if they will put themselves in your space three or four times, you will connect with them. I know that about you. And some of you, you've got to make that choice. Get in their space. Show up at the events. Come to our nights out. Come to our, our fellowships. Come to our Bible studies. And I promise you, you won't be alone again. This church will be here for you. We love God. We love you. I know you love this church generically. It's time for you to start loving this church specifically. I love this church because I love that person and that person, and I know that person. That's where I want to be with this church. You know, God is growing this church. Look around the, the room. It's amazing how many people are in this room. And I remember not five years ago, there was like 40 people in this room. I was like five years ago, and there was like eight kids upstairs and one baby, if that. And I think it was ours, so it was our baby (laughs) who was in there. (laughs) I was funding the nursery. (laughs) Folks, God is growing this church, and I'm excited about that. Part of me wonders what we're going to do about that because I personally, I've never, ever had a heart to be a pastor of like 500, 600. That's just not me. I don't have a desire for that. I would rather, if we got to that point, that we have a separate building or something, and another pastor, whether one of the ones we have here, if they don't want that, then some other pastor. You know, start another church, like a sister church. I just don't have a desire to be a church of 700. Not that I would have happened. Probably not, because I don't want it. I want to love you. And I can't do that for 700 people. I can barely do it for the 180 that are here. 700 is ridiculous. So, as God grows, I promise you this. My goal as a pastor... As we grow, there will be some changes. What I will not change, what I will not budge, is the love. And if we grow past our ability to do that, then we will make a choice to do something and assist our church so that two churches can love each other as they need. The journey is hard. God does not intend for you to take it alone. In fact, if our pianists come up now and play, and I'd like to for, ask, ask for you take some time and pray. If you'd like to come up front to the altar, I'd love to pray with you and your family. Now remember, you're children of the light. Have you been taking advantage of the opportunities God gives you? Being aware of the day of judgment, not living in the past, not even living in the present, working towards the future. And are you doing so out of love, not of obligation? Take some time to pray. If you just want to, out even inside of the message or the truth preached, if you just want to receive some prayer, I would love to pray with you and over you. You come up to the front here. Pray with yourself. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your kids. Pray with me. Pray from your seat as a pianist plays.